Welcome to OECD Podcasts, where policy meets people. Propaganda and disinformation have been around since at least the ancient Romans. What's different now is the speed at which false and falsified information spreads, and we have social media platforms and mass messaging systems to thank for that. I'm Clara Young, and today I'm with Hossein Darakshan to talk about fake news, and he will tell us why we shouldn't call it fake news. Hossein is an Iranian-Canadian writer and media analyst. He co-authored the 2017 report Information Disorder, published by the Harvard Kennedy School Shorenstein Center. He is currently a researcher at MIT's Media Lab, and also something that some people might not know, is Hossein was also a pioneer blogger in Iran in the 2000s. He was imprisoned in Tehran in 2008 for his online activities and released six years later. So thanks for talking to me, Hossein. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Now, you're against the term fake news. Why is that? Because it's not just news. It's any kind of information that is false and it has the intention to harm somebody that's basically what people are talking about. And I think we have to clarify the different categories. There are three categories. There are three types of bad information in which we'll, we, we laid out in the information disorder report. One is misinformation, which means false information, but without intent to harm anybody. Then we have disinformation, as I just said, which combines the intent to harm and also the falseness. But then we also have a third category for which uh, I had to coin a new word, which is uh, malinformation. In French, there is malinformation exists, but in English it doesn't exist. So malinformation is when you have accurate information, but with the intent to harm. That's oh. a very interesting area, and I think it's a growing area. Best example for that is revenge porn. Right. Or leaks, because all leaks are, if they're not manipulated, they're accurate information, but they change the context and they, they made it uh, in such a way that it would harm somebody. So it's usually the change of spatial context. For example, there is a picture about a specific place they changed that caption of that picture, for example. They claim that it's happened somewhere else. Or they changed the temporal context, the date. They changed the date of a picture, for example, or a piece of text or whatever. Or they changed the context of private and public. They bring something that is private to the public, and that's the way they intend the harm. Um, and this is a growth area in this industry of information, malinformation. Yes, I think the most alarming aspect of all this is how the with the new technologies false information in its different shapes can quickly become amplified so if it's intended to harm anybody then the harm would be would become quite significant because it's suddenly amplified and not just by local actors in a way because of the international connectedness of all this network it's so easy for an organized attempt by an outside group of actors, for example, in another country to amplify something in another context. Mm. So you suddenly, that's why I think everybody's looking at it in a different way. And that's why many other, many countries are using it against each other in terms of uh, their rivalries or basically they're using it as a mechanism of soft power or 
in in conflicts and as maybe even an extension to their military operations in a way. So war by yet another means. Yes. Now, the impact of disinformation and malinformation and also misinformation, we can have a sense of it on the people they're targeting. What about its impact on society in general? I think after probably around maybe a few decades of mass media reach around the world, I think people have completely changed their attitudes to what 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 they receive from the media. Because in the beginning, if people remember their parents, for example, or grandparents, the way they listened to radio news, the way they they trusted what they read in print, it was very different. To be honest, I think you could compare that with books or education. I think media in the beginning was perceived more of a more like education. People really trusted these authorities and these sources. But I think with the experience of the past few decades, especially all these scandals, all these manipulations by the government, especially by the governments themselves, they have been manipulating their own uh, non-state organizations, their own populations or other people, other sides, other countries' populations or non-state organizations. We should never dismiss the the attempt that the government actually uh, do in terms of disinformation. So with all these things that people have accumulated this experience um, across generations, I think we can now say that people do not trust the media. And I think actually it's a good thing in a way, because we can't, if we can't make them trust the right or the proper or the more accurate media, because that's the case, that's the problem now, we can make them speculating anything they receive. And I think this would lead to a healthier kind of society, to be honest, or political conversation than when people trusted some sources as if they were education, as if they were complete truth and mistrusted some other sources. of It could be viewed as a healthy skepticism. Exactly. But the problem is, is that people need to not take everything at face values. They need to be able to check things. Mm-hmm. And you talk a lot about ethical journalism and the role of fact-checking. Can you go into that for us? Fact-checking is a very interesting thing. There are two camps now because there's research about how fact-checking in that sense doesn't really impact public. And then there are other people who are pushing for it and they say that's the most effective thing to tackle this information and, and bad information is actually fact-check. So I've come up with a new model that I think would resolve this tension between these two camps. I've made a matrix of nine possibilities based on who targets who, who wants to manipulate who. So you have government or basically state, you have non-state and you have the public. So these try to manipulate each other in a nine-type nine matrix. So I understand state, that's very clear. Could you give me an example of a non-state manipulator? The way, for example, some uh, members of the public try to manipulate non-state organizations, especially human rights organizations, by sending them false uh, eyewitness videos, for example, mm. especially now that the videos are rising as a as a medium of activism. And I think... People are not really aware yet how easily you can manipulate. You can basically make up a scene and then, in a video. Yeah, in mm-hmm. a video. Uh, I'm not talking about deep fakes and that kind of stuff. Oh, no, I'm no. talking about staged 
videos, staged eyewitnesses, you know, to manipulate, for example. You've seen so many examples during the Syrian crisis on both sides. The pro-Syrians were producing these manipulated eyewitnesses and the other, right. the, the opposite forces. So there are very interesting categories of disinformation warfare in mm -hmm. this that we actually have to take into account. We all know how much we are vulnerable to emotions and you can easily be manipulated at least for a few minutes after watching a very emotional video about something unless you start thinking and you know uh, you you pass that phase of emotional reaction mm -hmm. but the other type of target in disinformation warfare which is non-state organizations they are rational actors and they have a huge role in state-sponsored disinformation warfare because the impact of direct reach towards the public, it's decreased as a result of this experience, this increasing mistrust of the public towards propaganda. Right. That's called propaganda. When state targets the public, it's propaganda. I see. Mm -hmm. But when state targets or tries to manipulate non-state organizations, I think this is the type of information warfare that we really have to take more seriously. What's because a good recent the example? The best example is yeah. the Iraqi invasion. Okay. This was not done through direct propaganda by the American government or the Bush, basically, administration. On the It actually happened through non-state organizations on top of which was the media organizations. Look at the way they manipulated the New York Times, for example, in mm. selling to the public the, this false information about Iraq having nuclear weapons or the, WMD, the, the, right, exactly. weapons of mass mm -hmm. destruction. I think that's such an amazing example of how we have to focus more on non-state organizations and make sure that they are never ma manipulated by state or by other non-state organizations or even by the public through these fake eyewitness videos and all that. So how can we counter that? So how can we counter these disinformation campaigns in the case of video, whether staged or yeah. fake? To be honest, I think if you want to do fact check on a on a massive level, that costs so much money. And I think the impact of it is far less than the money that you actually spend on. That's that's a hypothesis. Obviously, there's going to be more research on this. But what I suggest as a short term solution and the most effective and actually the least costly solution is to focus on non-state organizations. There are not many that are vulnerable to these things. There are human rights organizations, there are media organizations, and some maybe policy-making organizations. Because they are rational actors, you don't even have to do much. You just have, I mean, if you, for example, if there is a newsletter, you can create a newsletter for for specific kinds of organization or human rights organization, for example. If they receive a newsletter every day or every week with the most important examples or items of this information and they, they would be informed about them, I think they could easily adapt. So uh, a kind of newsletter of watch out for these kinds of, yes, if you're receiving yeah, this kind of information. The problem, the problem is that when, uh, when individuals, because they are very emotional, that's the problem. That's where the problem is when it comes to disinformation. If you're always rational, if you're a rational actor, which doesn't apply to human beings, but it does apply to organizations because of their structure and rationality or as their core of their operations and all that, I think you can expect them 
not to be manipulated mm. if if they're more careful and if we focus on non-state organization. The problem is resources. Most newspapers have been cutting down on staff and cutting down on fact checkers and and that sort of thing. And yeah, the, there's there's just not the resources for that. Yeah, I think governments should or non-state organizations that are focused on tackling disinformation, they have to create a kind of system or put specific separate resources to tackle disinformation when it comes to the media as a target. So mm. yes, obviously that's not what you can expect from the media themselves. There has to be a third party mechanism for this. What about government regulation? as a way, but that would be more of as a way to counter a wildfire spread of bad mm. weaponized information to the directly mm. to the public. Yes, but it actually covers the area of, I think, protecting the non-state organizations, because then they would reach the public. So if, if there's any attempt to regulate what they can publish on platforms. The platform. You mean these non-governmental organizations yes. or Yeah, the because press. it covers the commercial organizations as well. So, for example, if there is regulations uh, that limit or kind of regulates the speech on social media platforms, because they are rational actors, I think it's quite significant and it's quite effective. Because You're saying that social media platforms as rational actors. Yes. But um, they're is quite a lot of reticence about regulation from social media platforms. One reason being that algorithms seem to be designed to encourage mm. controversial matter because yes. more people and click on it yeah. and more emotional. emotional content. Yeah, that's true. That's why I think there's a huge mistake here if people assume that we should regulate uh, speech or content. What should be regulated is the algorithms. Mm. If And the, the ultimate goal for that should be to curb amplification or to regulate amplification in a way. Right. Because that's where the problem is. That's the main difference that we have now compared to 100 years ago or 20 years right. ago even, uh, the amplification. So, for example, if, a social, if Facebook, for example, or Twitter suddenly realizes or recognizes that a piece of news, for example, or a tweet in Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. is becoming much, much more amplified through from Russia, for example, that should be suspected. So when you say by amplified, meaning that a lot of people are uh, retweeting liking it, or liking retweeting it, it yeah. and, and so it's just circulating. Exactly. So I think any regulation that targets platforms in sort of encouraging them to at least to do as much as they can to control amplification or basically to fight manufactured amplification and to make it impossible, I think that would go a long way. Because then again, policing billions of people's tweets and Facebook posts and all that kind of stuff, first of all, is impossible. It's so expensive to do that. And it's not as effective as they might think. But the amplification is much more effective. And it's exactly what I cover in my model, where non-state organizations are responsible for uh, tackling these information warfare. 
My last question is this.、Uh, you were imprisoned by the Iranian government on charges of spreading propaganda. Now you work to clarify the difference between good and bad information and how to tackle in- disinformation. So it's really kind of ironic, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite ironic. But I think it's a growing concern among,、uh, around the world how information can be used as weapons. And the main, obviously, obviously, with before the globalization or the international media, that would have been impossible. But now it's increasingly possible. But I also have to say that we have to be more careful about the assumption that sees information as viruses, because minds are not bodies. If a body is exposed to a virus, they can't decide. To catch it or not to catch it, right? But mind is different. So if people are exposed to even bad information, it doesn't necessarily mean that they would accept it or they would change their behavior or attitudes. So I think we have to also be aware of not to fall into the trap of of the propaganda model of、right. media effect, which is the earliest kind of argument for how media actually impacts or affects、uh, people's opinion, because that paves the way for. Censorship and authoritarianism, and it's quite sad to see the discourse of control of the media now in some even Western countries、mm-hmm. is becoming very, very similar to the arguments that authoritarian systems use to censor. You、speech. mean control of the media justified by we need to do something about all this fake news and yeah, disinformation? Because, exactly, because apart from. An incitement to violence, for example, or hate speech, which are illegal in many contexts.、Mm-hmm. But if people are exposed to something, for example, racist, if it's not completely hate speech, you know, if it encourages a kind of maybe bad or wrong attitude,、mm-hmm. I think it shouldn't be censored if it's not hate speech. Because if you censor it, it means that you've accepted that they are like viruses. Information is not virus, and that's why I'm against using the words like viral and these kinds of things that、uh-huh. all come from biology. But mind doesn't work like that, and and human minds is the most complex thing. So and, we and, should really be careful about and it. And it's the freedom of speech balance,、exactly. which is very very tricky. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me, Hussein. Thank you for having me. That was a good, spontaneous conversation. And thanks for listening to OECD podcasts. I'm Clara Young. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud.com/slash/OECD.